0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Twimmel Talk, the podcast where I interview interesting people doing interesting things in machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. A quick thanks to everyone who participated in last week's Twimmel online meetup. It was another great one. If you missed it, the recording will be posted to the meetup page at twimmelai.com slash meetup. Definitely check it out. I never cease to be amazed by the generosity and creativity of the Twimmel community, and I'd like to send a special shout-out to listener Sharon Glander for her exceptional sketch notes. Sharon has been creating beautiful hand-sketched notes of her favorite Twimmel episodes and sharing them with the community. Sharon, we truly love and appreciate what you're doing with those, so please keep up the great work. We'll link to her sketch notes in the show notes for this episode, and you should definitely follow her on Twitter at ShearingGlander for more. This is your last chance to register for the Rework Deep Learning and AI Assistant Summits in San Francisco, which are this Thursday and Friday, January 25th and 26th. These events feature leading researchers and technologists like the ones you heard in our Deep Learning Summit series last week. The San Francisco event is headlined by Ian Goodfellow of Google Brain, Daphne Kohler of Calico Labs, and more. Definitely check it out and use the code TWIMLAI for 20% off of registration. In this episode, I'm joined by Inmar Gavoni, Autonomy Engineering Manager at Uber ATG, to discuss her work on the paper MinMax Propagation, which was presented at NIPS last month in Long Beach. Inmar and I get into a really meaty discussion about graphical models, including what they are, how they're used, some of the challenges they present for both training and inference, and how and where they can be best applied. Then we jump into an in-depth look at the key ideas behind the MinmaX propagation paper itself, including the relationship to the broader domain of belief propagation and ideas like affinity propagation, and how all these can be applied to a use case example like the Makespan problem. This was a really fun conversation, And now on to the show. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Inmar Gavoni. Inmar is uh, the Autonomy Engineering Manager at Uber ATG. That's Uber's Advanced Technology Group in uh, Toronto, Canada. Inmar, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, It's awesome to have you on the show. We've been uh, trying to get this coordinated for quite a while. So um, I'm glad we're able to make it happen early in the new year.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited about this.
0: As is our tradition here, why don't we get started by having you tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you got interested in machine learning?
1: Sure. So for me, it actually started pretty early on in the sense that uh, back in high school, I thought I wanted to be a neuroscientist. And I was pretty sure that understanding and researching the brain um, is the most interesting thing that I could apply myself to. Uh So going into university, I chose the areas of uh, computer science and biology, because I thought of brains as machines and thinking that the computer science and engineering approaches would be useful for understanding them, and biology, because it is, after all, a biological substance. Right. And I spend a lot of my time taking neuroscience courses and talking to your neuroscientists and trying to understand how they approach solving the problem. Uh, at the same time, towards the end of my undergraduate degree, so the last year, I also took a machine learning course. And first of all, the the machine learning course was really interesting. It was such a different way of thinking about how to solve problems that really appealed to me. The mathematics of it were beautiful. It combines a lot of things that I previously learned, and they never really clicked into one place. So, you know, anything from linear algebra, calculus, probability theory, statistics, graph theory, combinatorics, all of it is used in one way or the other in machine learning. Mm-hmm. And also it allows us to solve problems that you can't really solve with traditional programming or engineering approaches. So it's it's a whole new mathematical way of looking at these problems and then coming up with really beautiful solutions. And as for the neuroscience, I felt like maybe instead of trying to Understand the brain. A different way of doing it would be to try and build software that exhibits intelligent behavior. So that drove my decision to do a PhD in machine learning. And so I moved to Toronto, which is one of the best places in the world to do machine learning research and did that for a few years. And uh, while I was in school, I did a few internships and I also realized that I really like working towards a specific product and Mm -hmm. towards something that is tangible and is out there in the world and people use and is also up for that type of scrutiny. So after graduation, I worked in various companies on uh, applications of machine learning to real-world products. And uh, I like physical things, so in all of them, there was some sort of a physical product that you can actually touch. And and of course, self-driving cars is one of the most exciting uh, new technologies i mean maybe the technology itself is not that new or the idea of doing it is not that new it's been around for about a decade at least but it's now really coming into you know full attention from everyone in the world and i thought joining this office would be an incredible opportunity so i've been here for a few months now
0: oh wow and what specifically do you do there
1: so the office in Toronto is a research and development office. It's led by Raquel Ortison, who is one of the world experts in the intersection of self-driving, deep learning, and computer vision. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a research group of researchers who are working on creating new, innovative, cutting-edge algorithms for uh, using deep learning for self-driving. My role is helping take these products, these research prototypes and first phase algorithms and uh, actually get them into the car. So get them into production. Oh, wow. And so I, uh, I manage a team of applied researchers and software engineers who help with um, everything that has to happen in order to, you know, to take a, a prototype, something that resembles what you would get out of a publication and actually make it into a production feature.
0: Hmm. Now we've talked about uh we did a series on autonomous driving last year I think in the fall or towards the end of last year and one of the things that jumped out at that was the different approaches and philosophies to doing uh, machine learning for autonomous driving kind of you know end to end versus Integrating different systems, you know, versus you know, and camera, camera first versus you know, sensor fusion approaches. Does Uber have a kind of a what's Uber's approach to autonomous vehicles and in, in that domain?
1: So we're definitely as a place that specializes in deep learning. We believe that deep learning approaches for The various aspects of technologies you need to introduce, you know, around perception, understanding where the car is, understanding um, who the actors are, can all benefit from deep learning. Mm -hmm. In terms of what kind of architecture specifically or, you know, the sensors and so on, I think this is still something that is an ongoing research and understanding what are the benefits of the different sensors and when is the right time to use them and in what configuration. So I would say that's still an open question.
0: Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we wanted to dig into in this conversation was a paper that you co-authored that was released at NIPS or was in the the NIPS proceedings on min-max propagation. One of the things that I observed at NIPS was a lot of conversations around graphical models and graphical approaches in general for machine learning. And as maybe a segue into that conversation, I wanted to get a sense from you is that would you say that there was a there's kind of heightened interest in graphical models uh, this year or is it a conversation uh, that has been, you know, continuing on? You know, without, I guess, is there there a heightened level of interest in in this particular type of uh, modeling approach?
1: Right. So here is my take on it. Graphical models are very powerful mathematical tools to represent our understanding of the world and our understanding of what we don't understand and the fact that there is uncertainty and noise so as modeling tools they're very powerful the problem has been that they're very difficult to to train and to to do learning and inference so they are computationally expensive and they do not scale up uh, to in to full blown industrial purposes. So it was a there has always been not always, but you know there's been an ongoing exploration and research in graphical models for a long time. I entered mm-hmm. the field doing research, I would say around 2006, and these were very popular and like a big area of focus. And in fact, my thesis focuses on application of graphical models to clustering. Okay. But it remained within, I would say, primarily within academia with the exception of, of specific models that uh, were simpler to use than others and were used in industry. And then we had, you know, over the last few years, obviously we had this intense focus on, on deep learning and neural networks. And a lot of people, worked on them. Some some people shifted from working on graphical models to focusing on innovation in deep learning. And I think now that we are kind of getting to a place where a lot of the groundwork has been done and a lot of the, let's call it the low-hanging fruits have been picked, now there is growing interest in looking again at graphical models and then asking, given all we've learned about how to do deep learning at scale and how to use it and how to be able to solve difficult problems with it. Can we now merge better the the two strategies and can we create new types of models that leverage the leverage both so that maybe graphical models can become as useful as, as deep learning models.
0: Mm. And what are the types of applications that lend themselves most readily to use of graphical models?
1: There are many different applications. One that is commonly, I would say, looked at is in, let's say, healthcare. So understanding or predicting whether a particular patient has a particular type of cancer. You can describe all that you know about the different measurements you've taken and and so on using a graphical model. And then you can try to infer the actual underlying state of their illness, if they have one, the type, the, the stage, and so on.
0: And the main idea, as I understand it, behind the application of graphical models is, as opposed to traditional I guess traditional we'll, we'll start with uh calling it traditional but a typical data set let's say uh where you've got data points and the the data set doesn't really express any inherent relationship between the data points as opposed to mm-hmm. a relationship between you know features within those data points uh within what graphical models are really trying to do is identify relationships between the data points in the data set. Is that uh, an accurate assessment?
1: Yes, yes. They deal with representing all sorts of quantities in the world as, as variables and either explicitly saying that there are known complex relationships between these variables or trying to learn the complex relationships between these variables.
0: And when you say explicitly saying that there are known complex uh, relationships is is are you there describing kind of pulling in prior knowledge about the relationships between these variables into the models, or
1: yeah, that would be one way of doing it where you represent all sorts of prior knowledge given with, with distributions that you believe are well suited to represent your prior knowledge and also representing the actual relationships between the variables. So if we're trying to think of a relatively simple example, Let's say that I'm trying to represent an image in terms of a graph. So maybe every pixel in the image uh, will be a node in the graph, and every pixel will be connected to the pixels that are around it. And these connections, these edges on the graph represent the fact that we think that um, the value of the pixel is highly correlated to the value of the pixels around it, right? So, for Mm -hmm. example, if we know about the pixels around it, we can make guesses as to the value of the pixel or we can represent the possible values of it as a distribution that is not uniform it learn it knows something from its surrounding so that would be one way of representing uh, relationships between variables
0: and our images is that a common application area for graphical models
1: so images used to be uh, before we were okay. able to successfully work with uh, deep neural networks. But uh, in terms of performance, right now I would say that convolutional neural networks are much better at tasks around predictions and uh, prediction and detection and mm-hmm. and various tasks that have to do with images.
0: So what have been the some of the. Biggest achievements to date of this kind of renewed interest in graphical models, you know, with the background of the the progress in deep learning over the recent years.
1: I think one interesting idea is to allow for neural networks to operate over graphs. So there is a new uh, research area in graph neural networks and. Graph convolutional neural networks, and other um, other ideas are that within the network you represent some of the you model some of the the network explicitly using some formulation of a of a graphical model. Uh,
0: and so, what does it mean to have the network operate over a graph?
1: So again, going back to the example of images. Mm-hmm. If you think about it as a graph, it's bas- it's a grid, right? It's a simple graph, and so we can very easily do operations on it, like uh, convolutional operations, because we just mm-hmm. uh, shift them, shift you know the filter over, and it's the same operation. But you can also abstract um, this notion of a convolution to something where it's not a nice grid, but it's still a graph. Okay. So, but that requires the mathematics to be developed for it and to be made efficient.
0: Hmm. So then, so is the idea then to kind of replicate what a convolutional network is doing, but with graphical uh, models?
1: Not necessarily. It's just to use the, I guess the body of knowledge and work from graphical models. And maybe we can get into Inference a little bit in a moment, uh, so for doing inference in graphical models that is not really captured uh, within neural networks so so neural networks people talk about doing learning and inference in neural networks, but really, I think the it's come to mean that learning is when you train the algorithm right, and inference is when at test time, you basically run forward propagation through a network and come up with a prediction. Mm-hmm you know it's it's a correct use of the the term but it's in in the context of neural networks the the inference part is easy because it's just a straightforward calculation sometimes computing this prediction. So computing in, in the case of neural networks, like, what is the probability that there is a particular object in the image, let's say, right? And then it like, right. spits out um, a probability of whether it's there or not in this particular place, let's say. So in some cases, let's say when when the underlying model is a graphical model, computing this probability is in and on itself a difficult subproblem, And then there is a large body of work on computing, running this uh, algorithm. And in some cases, in particular in graphical models, the within training itself, so not just when you're at test time, you're interleaving the learning and the inference part. So the learning is often referred to coming up with estimates over the hidden variables um and we didn't really talk about what hidden variables are but sorry coming with estimates of the parameters governing the behavior behavior of the hidden variables um the parameters in a neural network would be the weights and so right. we're learning we're basically optimizing the weights and in graphical models, the parameters can be for example, parameters that govern distributions, right? Like I I assume that there is a Gaussian and I don't know what is the mean and the variance of the Gaussian, so that would be Mm -hmm. the parameters that I'm trying to learn. But then there is also an inference part, which is computing all sorts of typically predictions or probability distributions on the the variables of, of interest and that requires running some sort of a sometimes complex computation and when I'm done with that, I sometimes... Iterate back to the learning part. So given that I've refined my estimate of the probabilities, now I refine my estimate of the learning uh, part of the parameters and go back and forth between the two. So, So what I've just described is a very high level, an algorithm called the expectation maximization algorithm or EM algorithm, which is used for doing learning and inference in graphical models like a Gaussian mixture model, for instance. And if you want, we can talk a little bit about what is a Gaussian mixture model.
0: Yeah. Before we do that, so the expectation mm-hmm. maximization that you were just just describing, this is I'm trying to contextualize this. We were talking about training and inference, uh, and then you started mm-hmm. to talk about inference. But this is this is used as part of training, but it so includes we inference calculations. The, mm-hmm. Is that the?
1: Yeah. So again, in in non-neural network world when you're talking about the training procedure itself may include both learning and inference got it and so you need to maybe the gaussian mixture model is is a good example to run through for that so in, in gaussian mixture models we basically have a whole bunch of data Mm-hmm. It's a way of clustering the data, let's say. So in clustering, we assume that the data can naturally be divided into groups, right, or clusters. And what makes a good cluster is that the points in the cluster are quite similar to each other, and they're quite different from other points in other clusters, but now that I'm given a whole bunch of data, how do I go about actually finding these different clusters? And in a Gaussian mixture model, I basically make an assumption that there was some process that generated the data, which is uh, let's say that the data happens to have five clusters. So so someone you know flipped a coin or all a dice and sampled the centers of the clusters.
0: Right. Right.
1: And then um, from each center, a bunch of data points were sampled, but there was some noise involved, right? Mm -hmm. And so now if all I get to see is the end result, is I get to see a lot of points and I need to infer, I need to learn the parameters. So I need to learn the means of the clusters, the centers of the clusters and their variances, um, Mm -hmm. how noisy uh, the cluster are. And then I need to infer the probability that each point came from any one particular cluster. So that would be a, a distribution over the clusters.
0: You're typically, are you also inferring the number of latent variables or processes that are producing your data? Or is that always an assumption that you make in your modeling?
1: Oh, so that's a good question. So the traditional algorithm um, assumes that this is actually given as an input. Somehow, I figured out that there are five clusters. Mm -hmm. Right. But of course, that's not really a good assumption, because I typically don't know.
0: Right. Right. And so
1: the next obvious step is to, you know, run it with a whole bunch of possible number of clusters and, and figure out how to measure which one is best. But that's not naturally uh, that's not necessarily easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is a, a very interesting literature on what's called uh, non-parametric approaches, or okay. non-parametric Bayesian approaches, which basically say we don't want to make the assumption that we know the number of clusters ahead of time. And so we're going to also inject that, and because it's Bayesian, they're not actually inferring the number of clusters; they are integrating over the number of clusters. So, okay. uh, so it gets to fairly complicated math. But there is definitely the attempt to try to accommodate for that. And, and going back to what I was saying before, that's an example of some really interesting and fairly, you know, beautiful mathematics around that area. But it's not yet. Practical to run these algorithms at scale.
0: Is that when you're saying these algorithms in this case? Are you referring to to which in particular? Bayesian non-parametric in yeah. particular. The Gaussian mixture models are fairly widely used. Is that right?
1: Yeah. If yeah, if you know the number of clusters, like, or if you're going to assume that you give it as an input to the algorithm, then that mm-hmm. that is an algorithm that can be applied uh, quite successfully to. To data, And so um, going back to this thing, the, the EM algorithm, what you typically end up doing is iterating between two types of computations. One is given some estimate of different means and variances of each cluster. Mm -hmm. I will compute, I will do the inference, so I will compute what is the probability for each point to be associated with each one of the clusters. Mm -hmm. And then after I'm done computing that, I go back to re-estimating my parameters and refining the estimates of the parameters, and I do that until convergence.
0: Hmm. So does that mean you're iterating on the like the cluster centers and the parameters of your distributions for each of the clusters as you're incorporating the, the points into the clusters?
1: So this is for training time. So in training time, in this case I assume I have access to all of my data and I'm just trying to figure out, you know, where are these cluster centers and their variances and uh, which point belongs where. Right, right, and so so I will train by running the e m algorithm, I will end up with estimates of the cluster centers and their variances, and then, if I'm getting a new data point, then I can do the prediction of you know what is the probability that it came from cluster one, two, three, four
0: mm-hmm. right, so where does min max propagation fit in?
1: right, so now we kind of have to step quite a bit back, so <laughs> so at, at a very because we kind of dove into one particular example, and and even with uh even with Gaussian mixture model, the inference itself is is relatively relatively straightforward, let's say. So at a very high level, this is a n- very very high level novel algorithm to approximately solve a particular set of NP hard problems, and the algorithm is a new variant of. Belief propagation, and the problems that we're looking at are min-max problems, and in particular, we demonstrated on make span. Now, in order to parse through all of that, <laughs> we have to talk about what each of these things mean, right? Right.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> so I can I can start talking about it, and you can interrupt me with with questions, but I'll try to I'll try to to take us through all of it. Okay. So NP-hard problems are, you know, roughly speaking, problems for which we don't know if there exists an efficient solution that will run in a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. We typically know a brute force solution. So Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with brute force is that as the problem scales, it takes longer and longer uh, in a typically exponential manner. manner, So it's just not practical. Mm -hmm. And so finding solutions that are approximations to NP-hard problems that run in a reasonable amount of time is a pretty big research area in theoretical computer science and other disciplines like uh, operational research. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's NP-hard. Now, if we look about min-max problems, They appear a lot in game theory, decision theory, and other math and science domains. And the technical definition is that you have a function of two sets of variables. Let's call them x and y. And you want to find the mean over x, max over y of the function x, y. But that doesn't really give a lot of intuition. So, So let's... Try and look at uh, at an example. So in the paper, we'll look at a problem called MakeSpan, which should be fairly easy to grasp. So let's say you have a bunch of um, incoming jobs, and I'm talking about jobs in the computer science sense. So some automated tasks that need to be executed on a computer, okay. and each will require some some amount of resources. So some like think about CPU or memory, right, to run. And we have a bunch of machines. Mm-hmm. sort of like a computing cluster to run it. And maybe each machine has slightly different capabilities. So it will take slightly different time to run each one of these jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we want to run all of them. So we obviously want to divide up the jobs in a way that everything finishes as soon as possible. And if we think about it, that time will be determined by the bottleneck, the machine that will take the longest to process all the jobs that were assigned to that machine. Mm-hmm. so what we want to do is we want to minimize the maximum time it could possibly take we want to find a way to split up the jobs across the machine so that we minimize the maximum time it would possibly take to execute the jobs
0: Got it. and you call this problem what makespan 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 yeah. okay sounds like yeah. a job shop problem
1: yeah yeah um, it's related to that okay yeah and notice that there is a simple brute force solution which is you know try out all the different ways you can divide up the load right Uh, Mm -hmm. but the problem of course is that this will be exponential in the number of jobs and so it becomes very intractable very quickly okay so okay so now we understand at least one example of a min max problem and um, so the algorithm we presented is again in the context of uh, it's to solve the min max problem and the paper demonstrated on the makespan problem but it's it's a little bit more it's more relevant than that it's relevant for a set of min max problems uh, and it goes into the technical properties of which kind of min max problems uh, can be addressed so i think we can skip that so now we can talk about the algorithm
0: well can you give us a, a high level characterization of of those types
1: min max problems
0: the types of min max problems just to get a sense for you know even what are the you know, what are the dimensions, you know, around what you're thinking about characterizing these problems?
1: So they are of the notion of, I want to minimize my worst case scenario,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So uh, another another example of um, min-max problems is when you have some sort of a two-player game and you're trying to come up with a strategy so that whatever the other player can do, which is some sort of, a, you know, I will incur some loss. Right, so the maximum loss, um I want to minimize that, okay, so that's kind of the most abstract formulation
0: for that problem so then it it sounds like what you've done in the paper in terms of characterizing the types of min max problems to which this particular method applies it, it's not necessarily an intuitive characterization, it's more a mathematical
1: yes, it's, it's detailed i guess of, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, it's subtle it. okay. Uh, restrictions let's say
0: okay and you mentioned belief propagation right let's talk a little bit about that
1: so now we can talk about the algorithm we we actually proposed so it is a variant of belief propagation okay and so in order to understand belief propagation we we need to know a little bit about inference in graphical models and message passing algorithms and we talked already a little bit about inference in uh, in graphical models in the context of describing Going back again to the notion of, you know, we have data or observations and we assume that there is some noise in these observations, in these measurements, and then there is some uncertainty, and we assume that there are some quantities that we don't have direct way to measure, but are depend they have dependencies with relationships with the quantities we were able to measure. Um, We often talk about this in terms of observed and hidden variables. And uh, in graphical models, we try to capture the way in which they are related using a graph. So basically every variable, whether it's something that we've observed or something that we can't observe, is represented as a node in the graph. And Mm -hmm. then the um, interactions between these variables are represented as edges in the graph and once we describe the problem in that manner we can start borrowing from you know graph theory and graph algorithms uh, to answer different questions about the graph that we have described which is basically a representation of the probability distribution over all of these variables so belief propagation is a general algorithm it has several existing variants that are quite well known. One of them is the max product belief propagation. Another one is some product belief propagation. And they are algorithms or recipes for computing these quantities of interest. So let's say that we have a bunch of these hidden variables. And one question we can ask is, you know, let's say that they are binary so they can either take the value zero or one we can ask what is the particular setting of all of these variables that yields the highest probability Mm -hmm. this is kind of like the mode of the distribution and in order to compute that we can use something like the max product algorithm and uh, at an intuitive level the way these algorithms work is again going back to this graph that we have in mind they send messages between the nodes so the nodes Exchange numerical quantities, sometimes in an iterative fashion, and then eventually they reach some kind of a decision.
0: So the nodes are variables, observed and hidden right. variables. And can you give an example of a scenario that includes both uh, these observed and hidden variables? Like, are, are these hidden variables in the sense of latent variables and a yeah, Bayesian exactly. inference sense?
1: Latent variables.
0: Okay. And uh, and the observed variables are... Uh, what's an example where you'd have both uh, observed and hidden variables? So
1: I can actually go back to my graphic uh, Gaussian mixture model and I can represent that as a graphical model where my observed variables is the data that I'm trying to cluster. Mm-hmm. And the hidden variables are the cluster's that I that are represented right. by by you know these parameters and and maybe I can talk in order to kind of segue into into this particular the the min max inference I'd like to talk about another clustering algorithm which I think would really focus us on the the inference side of the the hidden variables okay so so that that's a different clustering algorithm and this was actually the focus of my thesis uh work and it's called affinity propagation okay and this is an algorithm that was uh first presented by my supervisor uh, Fry and his uh, graduate student Albert duke and i focused on various extensions of the algorithm and reformulating of the mathematics. So anyways, the, w- the way we represent clustering in that algorithm is we basically say, okay, we have a bunch, of, a bunch of data points. We want to split it into groups that make sense. And instead of talking about uh, means and variances, uh, we're going to say that each cluster is basically best represented by an exemplar. So this is like the uh, representative of the cluster. And so really the problem becomes can we find the right set of representatives and then every point that is not a representative just needs to be associated with the representative that is closest to to it that is most similar to it Okay Okay so the problem of course is you don't know which subset of points is best to represent these clusters right mm-hmm. So in when you do this uh, uh max product belief propagation in the context of this graph, your variables are basically the data points. Mm-hmm. The hidden variables are for each point, which cluster should it be assigned to? Okay. Okay, so and, that's something you don't For know. each
0: point, which cl- right. And so that specifically, as opposed to the parameters of the cluster itself. Right. Right. Okay. So
1: we're not using parameters anymore for Got this it. this algorithm. So you can see that here here we'll be doing inference. We're going to come up with estimates of for each point what is the cluster it's going to be assigned to mm-hmm. without talking about a notion of means and variances. So there's no learning here, it's only inference.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And so the way the algorithm ends up working is basically again sending messages. So the, the nodes send messages to each other and the messages come out of a mathematical derivation, but if you look at them, you can kind of give them give an intuitive explanation of what they're really trying to say, which is they, it's, it's an iterative process where first all the nodes send a message to all of their neighbors, to each one of their neighbors, saying, To what extent do I want you to be my representative? Right. Mm-hmm. And after collecting um, all the information from my neighbors, so all my neighbors have told me to what extent um, they want me to be the representative. Now I send all my neighbors a message back saying, to what extent do I want to be a representative? Mm-hmm. Right. And so you iterate back and forth uh, on these messages until you converge. So stopping back a minute in belief propagation, we end up having these messages that are exchanged between the nodes in the graphical model for the purpose of doing inference for the purpose of computing these quantities that we care about and so i think now we might be ready to to talk about the min max propagation
0: yeah so just to just to make sure i'm on the same page so Mm -hmm. the we're talking about messages and message passing and things like that this is Mm -hmm. this is basically you know, a computational tool or an accounting tool that we're using to just keep track of uh, quantities in this algorithm, really, as we're yes. trying to do the inference. You know, my you know the the side of my brain that thinks about distributed computing is thinking about real things passing messages, and it's like that's not really what we're doing here.
1: Right? These are not text messages or JSON messages. These are numerical quantities that are computed and then used, but it's convenient to think about them as, you know, there is a numerical quantity computed for each one of these nodes, Mm -hmm. and then there is another one computed which relies on the previous computation, so it's almost as if the node sent that numerical representation, maybe a vector of numbers to all of its neighbors, and said, you know, this is my message, so now you're ready to do your computation in the next iteration of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. Okay great. So so now I think we have all the building blocks so we have you know these uh, graphical models and we know a little bit about message passing algorithms and the the question we ask in this paper is can we take this belief propagation type algorithms and we understand that they can work for s- The four types of questions that we're interested in the context of, you know, finding the, the the assignment of the variable that gives us the maximal probability or computing marginals and and other tasks. Can we somehow formulate it to solve the min max problem? Mm -hmm. And so. It turns out that we can. It's not by running the same algorithm. It's by borrowing the the general idea and uh, kind of the some of the mathematics around it, and writing down the min-max problem as a graphical model, and then deriving the form of the messages that need to be sent in order to compute uh, what should be the solution to the min-max problem. So hmm. they are similar in, uh, you know, in principle to the messages you send when you're doing max product or sum product. But of course, it's its own flavor that required figuring out the right derivation. And another interesting thing is what we do when we have interactions that are between quite a few variables, right? So if if we have in our graph an interaction between a subset of variables that is more than just two, Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the computations can, on the surface, seem like they are exponential in the number of the variables. So in order to be able to actually apply this framework to MinMax, we had to recognize that what looks like it's going to be an exponentially expensive computation can be actually done by some, you know, a little bit of cleverness and bookkeeping in Non exponential time. So, in something that is reasonable to compute.
0: Okay. Just, just kind of summarizing basically what you did with min max propagation was you borrowed from this uh, message passing approach that comes out of belief propagation and applied it to this makespan problem. And In addition, you've kind of mathematically characterized the more broader set of min-max problems to which this model would also apply.
1: Yes, and importantly, derive the form the messages need to take if you're doing a min-max computation as opposed to a sum product computation
0: or a max product computation. Mm. And what is that form?
1: So, so that's in the technical details. So it's basically an <laughs> equation that describes, you know, some form of a, you know, operations with minimums and maximums that can be computed in, uh, let's call it linear time for the, the purposes of Got this it. talk. Okay. But it's bas- it's an equation, right? Okay. It's an equation that when you go about implementing the algorithm, you will just write in
0: some code. Okay, you know, given the the computational requirements of this and the the space of potential application, you know, where do you think this paper and, and algorithm will have the broadest impact?
1: So I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of things people uh, use it for because it's relatively it's 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 a new formulation. Mm-hmm. We we wanted to look at the. The case of you know Max Maxpen as a particular uh, application, which is actually it is useful for things like scheduling tasks. It's useful for workload in terms of power consumption on turbines in power plants. So in the operational research world, I believe you know they, they look at these types of applications. Mm-hmm. But uh, but from I think one of the interesting things you get to do as a researcher is sometimes focus more on you know the the core algorithm and the mathematics of it and you know post it out there for the world to see so that various people who are looking at you know different problem domains can recognize that this actually matches to their problem of interest and mm-hmm. and take it into interesting places
0: right Right. On that note, it may be worth mentioning that this is all work that you did in the U of T context as opposed to the Uber context. Is that right?
1: Right, right. And it's also worth mentioning uh, my co-author, Christopher, uh, Siamak, and
0: Brendan. Uh, Okay. Awesome. Very cool. You know, it strikes me that uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I'm not sure that you know, but we do a, a monthly meetup where we... Kind of dig into research papers, and we've done a bunch of kind of deep learning focus ones. But it strikes me that this would be an interesting one to maybe have you or one of your co-authors present to the group to really dig into some of the details here. A lot. It seems like a lot of a lot of it is in the details.
1: Yeah, and uh, I would be uh, happy to to talk about that and to to look into this opportunity. I think one of the like again, as a side note, one of the exciting things about deep learning is that they're so successful mm-hmm. in terms of uh, you know how applicable they are to to problems that we care about. The one thing that is that they don't have as much as other algorithms is kind of you know uh, deep mathematics and kind of challenging. Representations that you really need a lot of time to wrap your head around, and so so it's it's really nice to dig into these these papers. And there's typically quite a bit of math in them as well. So I think it'll probably be interesting, and and will challenge people a little bit in in a way that's uh, that's interesting to look into these types of papers.
0: Mm, awesome. Where do you go from here with this particular work and, and your research? Is this something that you're Kind of finishing up that relates back to your time at Toronto, or is this ongoing work that you're involved in?
1: I would say this is more of a you know what I call recreational research. <laughs> 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 it's uh, something that I, I worked with on on uh, with with Chris in the past, who was uh, a graduate student as well in the lab, and mm-hmm. he kind of took it off from from there and for me right now the main focus is definitely here at work and working on self-driving cars.
0: Mhm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate uh you taking the time to uh walk through this with me. I know I've had uh a lot of questions and I still have a lot of questions. There's some this is not a topic that we've gone into in a lot of detail here on the podcast, but I think I did um I had several conversations on graphical models at NIPS. I forget mm-hmm. how many of those came out in our NIPS series off the top of my head, but we've got a few more to release over the next few weeks or months. You know, it seems to be – I don't know. I was surprised to I, – I guess I was going back to our early conver- earlier conversation. I was surprised by – uh, this kind of undercurrent of work happening in graphical models uh, at NIPS and how often I heard it. Although I don't know that that means anything. It's the first. It was the first time I was at NIPS. So <laughs> <laughs> my baseline is not exactly, you know, it was not exactly uh, very, uh, you know, dialed in. But there definitely seems yeah, to be there a lot of people yeah. interested in this area.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, again, uh, neural networks have kind of taken front stage for the last few years. and mm-hmm. But there's always ongoing research on, on graphical models and on an array of other problems in uh, machine learning. And so I think it's kind of nice to see things like the focus going back to, to some of these models and seeing what can we do with them now. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Well, on that note, Imar, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me and I hope uh, it makes for an interesting listening or at least uh, if not everything was uh, super clear as a introduction to to go and explore some more.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you for bye.
0: All right everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Inmar or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 101. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you, either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter directly to me at at Sam Charrington or to the show at at AI. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.